0: Let us pray. Almighty God, whose blessed Son was led by the Spirit to be tempted of Satan, make speed to help thy servants who are assaulted by manifold temptations. And as thou knowest our several infirmities, let each one find thee mighty to save. Through Jesus Christ, thy Son, our Lord, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. Well, welcome back. Um, A little thinner crowd today. I think a lot of people have gotten out of town. There's some school breaks and things going on, but we're delighted to see you this morning. We are in Ephesians. We started a study of Ephesians a couple of weeks ago, and uh, we got into it uh, last week, and so we're going to continue on today. So if you have your Bibles, you want to open them up to Ephesians chapter 1. And we're going to go ahead and we're going to read through the end of the chapter, beginning at verse, verse 3. Now, some of this we've already looked at, of course, last week, um, but we want to continue on with it and probably do just a brief review to remind you of where we started. So this is what Paul says, writing to the church in Ephesus. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places even as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before Him. In love, He predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of His will, to the praise of His glorious grace, with which He has blessed us in the Beloved. In Him we have, tem- we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespass might be to the praise of His glory. In Him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in Him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it, to the praise of His glory. Well, let's just stop there. Let's not go ahead and read through the end of the chapter because chances are we're not going to get to the end of the chapter. No surprises there, I'm sure. Nevertheless... We started last week, we said that one of the things that's unique about the writings of Paul is that if you look at his epistles, they can be generally divided into two parts. Uh, The first part is generally teaching, or what we might call doctrine. The second part of the epistles generally have to do with application. Um, What are the implications of this doctrine for our lives? Uh, If the gospel is not just an academic exercise, but it is something that really is good news, then that should make a difference in the way we live our lives. And so Paul's epistles oftentimes have two parts. They have doctrine, and then they have instruction, and then normally the letters end with doxology. That is to say, praise of God. Because when Paul reflects back on all the things that God has done, when he thinks about what that means for our life on a day-to-day basis, he can't help but erupt into praise of what God is doing. And so oftentimes you have those two components and then Paul normally ends with praise. We said what's so unique about this epistle to the Ephesians is that Paul begins with praise. That which normally comes at the end, uh, you can read his epistle to the Romans, for example, and see the doxology at the end. But what he normally ends with, he starts with here in Ephesians. Uh, Why is that? Well, we said there are any number of reasons for it, but not the least of which is the fact that the Apostle Paul had spent a great deal of time in Ephesus. He was probably closer to these people and to this church than to any of the others that he had established over the course of his ministry. Paul spent uh, in excess of two years, really, in Ephesus. That was a longer period of time than he spent anywhere else. Now, you might think to yourself, well, two years is not a particularly long time, Uh, but you have to remember that Paul was an itinerant Uh, His whole goal was to go out and establish churches to evangelize the ancient world. And so oftentimes he would spend only a few weeks, perhaps a few months in one place before moving on to the next. So the fact that Paul spent two years in Ephesus, well, that tells us that this was a very special church in his mind. It was a very important church historically as well because we see when you get to the book of Revelation that when there's the list of the seven great churches, Ephesus leads that list. So this was an important church. Paul has spent a great deal of time here. When he was writing this letter, and remember that the the epistles were, for the most part, they were action grants. Paul was sometimes addressing specific problems in the church, as when he wrote the two letters to the Corinthians. But sometimes he was just discipling the people. Paul was not only an evangelist, and I pointed this out in the Acts class, Paul was a discipler. He wasn't interested in simply throwing the gospel out at them, and they could do with it what they wanted. Paul wanted these people to grow strong. He wanted them to grow up into the full stature of Christ. He wanted them to make a difference in the world. And so these epistles were oftentimes meant to encourage, to strengthen, and to challenge. And that is exactly what the epistle to the Ephesians was meant to do. But as Paul reflected back on these people, and as he was addressing them, he just erupted in praise for what God was already doing in their midst. So even before we get to the doctrine, we have the doxology. We have a praise. And you can find those words of praise in verses 3 through 14, the verses we just read a moment ago. Paul says, Blessed be God, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. And then he goes on to list these blessings. Now, we pointed out last week the word spiritual can be taken two ways. On the one hand, spiritual blessings can be those blessings that are imparted to us by means of the ministry of the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity. Now, one of the interesting things uh, about the book of Acts, and those of you who have studied the book of Acts with me, you know this already. But One of the interesting things about the book of Acts is that it begins like this. Luke, who is the author, says, In my former book, O Theophilus, I wrote about all that Jesus began to do and teach before he was taken up into heaven. Now that's one of the reasons why we know that Acts is the second volume to a two-volume work. What's the first volume? It's the Gospel of Luke, and we know that because it is addressed to the same person or persons, Theophilus. And I say person or persons because the word or the name Theophilus simply means beloved of God. So it may have been addressed to a congregation, it may have been addressed to an individual by that name. But the first volume, the Gospel of Luke, what he's saying is, I wrote about all that Jesus began to do and teach. The idea being that in the second volume, he's going to talk about all that Jesus what? Well, presumably continued to do and teach. Except for one little problem. Jesus ascends at the end of the first chapter. And the book goes on for 20-some chapters more. And so you have to ask yourself, well, how in the world can Jesus continue to do anything if he's no longer present, if he's not here? Well, the answer was, he was going to do that through the work of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit was sent as the comforter to continue Jesus' ministry in the world, which is why I've always said, we shouldn't call it the Acts of the Apostles. We should call that book the continuing Acts of Jesus Christ in and through the lives of the Apostles by the power of the Holy Spirit which makes for a very long title page, which is why they just call it the book of Acts. But that's the idea here. It is God, the Holy Spirit, you see, who's going to continue on the Lord's work in the world. And that's what Paul is saying here. He's saying, we have been blessed in Christ with all of these spiritual blessings, all of the things that Christ had been promising to us, they have been manifest in our lives by the power of the Holy Spirit. So that's one meaning of the word spiritual. But another meaning, of course, of the word spiritual is those blessings. It's those blessings that are not material. There are material blessings in the world. There's no doubt about that. But there are also spiritual blessings in the world. And Paul is giving thanks to God for all of the spiritual blessings. Now, we don't think a lot about the spiritual blessings. Now, we live in the here and now pretty much as human beings. And so we focus on the things of this Life. I, I sometimes think that even many Christians function as practical atheists. That is to say, we give lip service to the future hope that we have as Christians. But in terms of the way we live our lives, we live as though this life is all there is. We're so focused on this life, we're so concerned with the problems of this life, that we oftentimes give very little thought, and if we do give thought to the next life, it's secondary. It's secondary. Oh yeah, that's somewhere down the road, and I know I need to get serious about that, but right now I've got to deal with this. And so we focus so much on the material blessings. Now don't get me wrong, God is certainly concerned with our material blessings. He wants to make sure that we have the things that we need. That's one of the reasons why we pray, give us this day our what? Daily, daily bread. God is concerned for our daily bread. He is the one who notes even the fall of the sparrow from the sky. He numbers the hairs on our head. He says, Look at the lilies of the field. They don't toil, they don't sow, and yet Solomon, in all of his glory, was not arrayed as one of these. God knows your needs. And furthermore, he knows your needs even before you ask. God will give you what you need. Not necessarily, this is important, not necessarily everything you want, but everything that you need will be provided. For you. Seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and everything else will be added unto you. So the things that you need. One of the dangers of living in an affluent culture is that sometimes we confuse the two. The things we need as opposed to the things we merely want. God is certainly concerned concern with our material blessings, but he is more concerned. He is more concerned with our spiritual blessings Because God, who is eternal, recognizes that this 70 or 80 years or 90 years or 100 years, if we're blessed, is a drop in the bucket. I was just talking to somebody who was coming into the 8 a.m. service this morning, and they were asking me about my boys. And this was somebody who had known my children since they were wee. And uh, I said, well, one's graduating from college and has just applied for law school. And I said, and the other one's just applied for OCS with the Marine Corps. And she said, I cannot believe that. She said, I remember them when they were this small. She said, how time flies. And it does, doesn't it? You know, there are times when it seems to creep along when you're a teenager. And then all of a sudden, it begins to gallop along. And before long, it's just flying by. We can't believe it. Well, that's true in life, you see. And so, if you think about it, we really ought to be concerned about eternity rather than just today. And so when Paul talks about all the spiritual blessings that we have received in Christ, these are the things that really excite him. And he goes on to list them, and we started looking at them last week. What were some of these spiritual blessings? Well, the first one that he mentions, first and foremost, in verse 4, is our election. Our election in Christ. He says, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before Him. In love, He predestined us. And we talked a little bit about this whole doctrine of election and predestination. It makes some people very uncomfortable, but it was actually intended to be a doctrine of pure, sweet, and unspeakable comfort. That's the way the prayer book speaks of it. We don't have time to go into it in greater detail today. We talked more about it last week. But if you're worried about the doctrine of election, if you don't understand the doctrine of predestination, take heart, because when we get to Ephesians chapter 2, we're going to talk about it in great detail. Great detail. So just hang on until we get there. But Paul's point here is this. God has left nothing to chance. All right? He's not left it up to you as to whether you're you're going to be saved. I can tell you from my own life that God chose me because I would never have chosen him. That's one of the reasons why I know election is true and sure. God had to choose me because I know in my own sinful, willful way I would never have chosen him. C.S. Lewis, in describing his own conversion, said that there was a moment when it seemed as though he chose Christ. He said, but as I look back over the course of my life and all of the factors that God was working together, it became very clear that I chose him because I had no other choice to make. Some of you can look back over the course of your own lives and you can see how God was working all things together to bring you to that crisis moment, to that point of decision, when you think you really chose Christ, but as you look back over the course of it, you realize there appeared to have been another power at work bringing me to that point. That's what Paul is talking about. He said that's a great blessing because God has left nothing to chance. Another spiritual blessing that he mentions here is our what? Our adoption. He elected us for what purpose? That we might be adopted as his Children, we've talked about this many times in other classes, and other lessons, and other books of the Bible. The, the popular notion these days is that we are all children of God. Everybody's a child of God. But unfortunately, that is simply not borne out by the scriptural witness. We are all, every single human being, a creature of God. And of all the creatures God has made, we are unique. We, we are elevated above all the others. We are the regents over creation. We are made in his image, a reflection of his glory and his majesty. But if you read the first chapter of John, it's very clear you only become a child of God by adoption. For he came to that which was his own, but his own received him not. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the power to become children of God. Not by choice, not by the will of a father, not by blood, but by grace. And we said that one of the important things to remember is the old, is is the background, the Greco-Roman background that Paul was operating in. In the ancient world, you could disinherit your natural children. But if you adopted a child, you could not disinherit your adopted child. Isn't that interesting? So once you're adopted as God's children, you cannot be disinherited. You cannot be cut out of the will, so to speak. You are saved, and you are saved for eternity. Nothing, nothing in all of creation, neither height nor depth, neither angels nor principality, neither things present nor things to come, nothing in all of creation can separate you from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus your Lord once you have been adopted by Him. What a blessing to know that you are part of God's family. I described it to somebody this way. I said, it doesn't matter how sordid your background was. It doesn't matter how wicked your life was before you came to know Christ. It really does not matter how bad things were. It doesn't matter how messed up your family may be. I think about Meghan Markle, who's going to be marrying Prince Harry. Now, she's a commoner. She's a commoner. She's an actress. But even if she wasn't an actress, even if she wasn't famous, let's say that she really had lived a sordid life. She was a terrible person. I mean, really terrible. She was involved in prostitution, whatever it was. And Prince Harry falls in love with her. Now, you might say, well, she's not worthy to be a princess. But she walks down the aisle, St. George's Chapel, I think that's where they're getting married, at Windsor. And she comes back out after the Archbishop of Canterbury has pronounced a blessing. And it doesn't matter how sordid, How terrible, how unworthy we may think she is, when she comes out of that church, that chapel, she is a what? She is a princess. (laughs) Now, we can hope and pray that over the course of time, she'll grow into the thing she has now become, but the reality is, she is a princess. That's us. Jesus Christ is the bridegroom. The church is his bride. You and I walk into the chapel as Miss Sinner. But when we come back out, having been united to Christ, and that's a theme we're going to come back to in just a moment, when we come out of the chapel, so to speak, we are Mrs. Christian. And all of the blessings that are Christ are given to us. That's adoption, my friends. You are are brought into a glorious and wonderful family. That's what you have. It's a forever family. It's not a perfect family, but it one day will be. So Paul talks about that spiritual blessing. He says we've been elected before the foundation of the world. God left nothing to chance. He's adopted us as his children. And then this was the third thing we looked at last week. He has redeemed us. Verse 7, in Him we have redemption through His blood. Redemption. I think in many respects, this is the most blessed of all the words in the Christian language. Redemption. What does it mean to redeem something? When you redeem something, what do you do with it? You literally buy it back. This is the language of the marketplace. And in Paul's day, when it talks about redemption, he's really talking about being purchased, you being purchased back, purchased back from slavery, from bondage. Every single one of us is a slave. You're either a slave to sin, the New Testament says, or you are a slave to righteousness, but we are all sinners, and we're all slaves as a consequence. In the ancient world, there were three ways that a person became a slave. You were either born into slavery, if your mother and father were slaves, you were born a slave, the way it was. You could become a slave by means of conquest. If a foreign nation came in and attacked your nation and conquered you, the people who were conquered, for all intents and purposes, became slaves of the people who had conquered them. Pretty much that's what the Jews were. Pretty much that's what everybody was in the Roman world in the first century. They were controlled by the Romans. That's one of the reasons why the Jews hated them so much. They didn't want to be slaves of this pagan, polytheistic empire, but they were. They were not free to do what they wanted to do. They were subject to the authority of Caesar. So in the ancient world, you could become a slave by conquest. You could also become a slave through debt. Now, we would write off debts today. Nobody goes to jail, generally speaking, because you're in debt. Well, we'd have to imprison half of America, probably, if that's the case today. But in the ancient world, if you didn't pay your debts, you went to jail until you had paid off the debt. It's not too long ago that even in England and parts of Europe, there were places called debtors' prisons for this sort of thing. And so you could become a slave to the person to whom you owed the debt. Well, in the same way, the Bible says you and I are slaves to sin. The Bible speaks of us being born into it. David in Psalm 51 says, Even before I was born in my mother's womb, I was a sinner. I was born this way. O.S. positive. Original sin positive. We've all got it. I've always said to you, the first thing that children say, the first words they learn, they may learn dada, maybe, but the first words that we can really recognize they know what they're saying is no. No. No! St. Augustine once said, do not think that the purity of children, the innocence of children, has anything to do with the sinlessness of their souls. He said it has everything to do with the smallness of their stature. They may look innocent, but that's only because there are certain things they can't do. But as soon as they can do them, they will. So we're born into this. We're also slaves by conquest. The psalmist talks about sin reigning over us, besetting sins, things which we try to break free from, but we cannot. They control us. We can all relate to what the Apostle Paul said. The very things I want to do, I don't do. And the very things I hate, these are the things I do. O wretched man that I am, who will deliver me? If you've ever experienced that kind of thing, then you know exactly what it means to have sin reigning over your life. And we become slaves to sin through debt. Paul in Romans chapter 6 says the wages of sin is what? Death. So we're all slaves. And what does God do? He sends Jesus Christ into this world to pay the price for our redemption, to buy us back, to give us freedom. Not freedom to do everything that we want to do, but freedom to do the things that previously we were incapable of doing. Redemption. And Peter, in his epistle, says, Remember, you have not been purchased with fading things like silver or gold, but you have been redeemed with the precious blood of Jesus Christ. Christ comes into the world, into the marketplace. He sees us in bondage. He's under no obligation to set us free, but he decides to pay the price for our emancipation, and the price is the price of his very own blood. How does the old hymn put it? There is plenteous redemption in the blood that has been shed. Remember those old hymns. They've got great theology in them. So now that we pick up today... What other blessings does Paul mention? Well, he goes on from redemption in verse 7 to the forgiveness of our trespasses. In Him we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of His grace, which He lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight. Now you might say, well, isn't redemption and forgiveness of sin the same thing? No, it isn't. Redemption is buying us back from the power of sin by the power of His blood. What is forgiveness? Forgiveness is what God does after he buys us back. He wipes the slate clean. How many of you have ever heard your parents say to you, you just need to forgive and forget? Anybody ever heard that expression? You need to forgive and forget. So how's that working for you? Can you all tell me that when somebody has really wronged you think of the person that has wronged you more than anybody else in your life. Don't dwell on it for very long but think about that person for just a moment and think about it and ask yourself this question can I forgive and forget? now we may discover that we can forgive and mind you forgiveness is not an emotion. It's not a feeling It's an act of the will. You choose to forgive. But for most of us, it's the forgetting part that's difficult, isn't it? It's that which we keep coming back to. Sometimes we bring it back up again years after the fact. Years after the offense has occurred. We keep bringing it back. So it's thing to forgive. It's another thing for us to forget. We find it very difficult to forget. And that's one of the reasons. Because we cannot forget, it's difficult to forgive. We think we've forgiven, and yet we keep bringing it back up again. And that's why we need the grace of God. But here's the amazing thing about the Lord. God not only forgives, He does forget. He wipes the slate clean. He separates our sins from us as far as the East is from the West. God does not throw it back in our face. Have you ever known somebody that does that to you, always throwing it back in your face? You dread seeing that person because you know the minute you see them, they're going to somehow, they're masters at this, somehow bring it back up again. God never does that. He expunges the record on that great day when the books are open and everybody's life is laid bare and there are all the the debits and all the credits, all the assets and all the liabilities, all the liabilities, my friends, if you are in Christ, they're gone. There's just one great asset, Christ Himself. You are in Christ. Well, what about all those things that you did? I don't see anything in the record that indicated that you did anything. God wipes the slate clean in Christ. There is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins and sinners plunge beneath that flood lose all their guilty stains. Lose all their guilty stains, lose all their guilty stains and sinners plunge beneath that flood lose all their guilty stains. What a wonderful message to know. God is never going to bring it up. Throw it in your face again. It is gone forever. So that's a spiritual blessing. Here's another spiritual blessing. He says we are given insight into God's purposes, into His purposes. In Him we have redemption through His blood. We have the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of His grace which He lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight. Verse 9, making known to us the mystery of His will according to His purpose which He set forth in Christ Jesus As a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in Him, things in heaven, and things on earth. Sometimes you look at the news, sometimes you see what's going on in the world, and you have to ask yourself, what is happening? Where is God in the midst of all of this? Where is God in the midst of this terrible shooting that took place in Florida this past week, in which 17 people were killed? What is happening in a nation? where we have all these school shootings, all of this violence. There's something wrong in the culture, my friends. You need to understand it. There's something terribly wrong. There is a deep fault line, there is a cancer in American society today. Many of us grew up with guns, many of us grew up playing cowboys and Indians, and somehow we didn't have this kind of gratuitous violence. Something is wrong. And we look at this and we wanna know What in the world is going on? Where is God in the midst of this? And the world cannot see it. It's one of the reasons why the world doubts the presence of God or the existence of God. They said, look at all the evil that's taking place. They fail to realize that the evil is perpetrated not by God but by people. And yet, when it happens, we don't blame people, do we? We blame God. (laughs) We blame God. But one of the things that Paul says is that when you are in Christ, what God does is by the power of the Holy Spirit and through meditating on his word, he gives us insight into what is happening in the world today. We may be shocked by what is happening in places like Florida or in Texas or other places, but we should not be surprised. You can be shocked, but you shouldn't be surprised. Why? Why? Because all of this is revealed, you see. You and I are given an insight into what is happening in the world, to God's purposes in the church, for his purposes in your own individual lives, in terms of living out your vocation as a follower of Jesus. All of those things are revealed to us. So many people go through life having no idea what they're here for. People spend billions of dollars, literally billions of dollars every year going to psychologists and psychiatrists, trying to figure out what their purpose in life is. What's my raison d'etre? Why am I here? And they're frustrated. They may be successful in the eyes of the world, but they are absolutely frustrated because they don't know why they're here. Well, if you're in Christ, that's going to be revealed to you. You're going to understand what you're here for, what your purpose is. But you only have that if you are a Christian. So you'll get insight into God's purposes, Paul says. You'll also get a sealing by the Holy Spirit. In Him, verse 13, you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in Him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. And this is important. Verse 14, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it, to the praise of God of his glory. The Holy Spirit is a gift. He is the third person of the Trinity and he is implanted in our lives when we place our faith in Jesus Christ. He is planted in our lives and he is the one that guides us. He is the one who directs us. He is the one who convicts us of sin and the need for redemption. And, listen to this, he is the down payment the earnest money. When you go out to buy something, buy a house, you have to put a down payment on it, don't you? And that down payment says to the seller that you are serious, that you are going to follow through. Now, you may not have purchased the house just yet, you may not have closed on the deal, but the fact that you put down the money, that is what? That is the promise, that is the guarantee that you are serious, that you are in earnest. When Paul describes the Holy Spirit's presence in our lives as the down payment, what he's saying is, we haven't experienced all of these spiritual blessings in their fullness. We're only going to experience that in heaven one day. But how do we know that we can count on it? Because God has given us a down payment. The Holy Spirit's presence in our lives, His presence in your heart, as He begins to renovate your life, room by room, That is the guarantee that what he has promised, he will deliver. That's a wonderful blessing, you see. That's why the Christian does not have to doubt as to whether or not they're saved. If God the Holy Spirit is at work in your life, then you know you've been guaranteed an inheritance. And that's the final thing that Paul mentions, an inheritance. If it is only for this life, Paul says, that you and I have hoped we are of all men most to be pitied. As I pointed out in the sermon last week, life sometimes has mountaintop experiences, but it oftentimes has deep, dark valleys, doesn't it? There's oftentimes death, despair, loneliness, grief, pain, physical maladies, you name it. Oftentimes we cling to the mountaintop experiences because there are so many of these other experiences. Which is why Paul says we can try to enjoy this life, but we should not place all our hope in it. There is an inheritance waiting for those who are in Christ. Paul says two things. In 1 Corinthians, he says, No eye has seen, no ear has heard. It has not entered into the mind of man what God has prepared for those who love him. I want you to think about that. Your mind cannot imagine. No eye has seen it. No ear has even heard of it. What God has prepared for those who love Him. And the second thing we're told is that one day, in that place, every tear will be wiped away from our eyes. We're told God keeps all our tears in a bottle. For some of us, you must have a pretty big bottle. But one day, he's going to wipe away every tear from our eyes. And what is so powerful about it is we're told God himself will do that. God himself is going to take your face in his hands, and he himself will wipe away every tear from your eyes. Whatever has grieved your soul, whatever has broken your heart, one day God himself will wipe that away from your eyes. So yes, there are all of these physical and material possessions that we have in this life. But Paul says, think about these spiritual blessings. That's where real confidence, my friends, is to be found. That is where you find real hope. And if there's one thing that the world needs, it needs hope. But there is one more thing about this. All of these blessings... Our election, our redemption, our forgiveness, our inheritance, all of these things, the sealing of the promised Holy Spirit, they are to be found in Christ and Christ alone. You cannot have these things if you are not in Christ. Paul uses that phrase, in Christ Nine times in Ephesians, chapter 1, verses 3 through 23. Nine times he uses that expression, in Christ or in him. He uses it 164 times in his other letters. Which tells us that this notion of being in Christ, he even says our election is in Christ in verse 4 which means that all these spiritual blessings are only to be found in a relationship with Jesus Christ. I preached about this last week when I talked about the transfiguration, but keep your finger there in Ephesians and turn to John chapter 14 for just a moment. This is what theologians call the doctrine of radical particularity. You want to go out and wow somebody with your theological knowledge? There's one for you. The doctrine of radical particularity. John chapter 14. Jesus is speaking to his disciples. This section of John's gospel, by the way, is referred to as the farewell discourse because these are among the final words that Jesus spoke to his disciples prior to his crucifixion. In fact, these words were spoken on the night of the Last Supper. Here's another little bit of trivia for you. We're in John chapter 14 right now. You'll notice that the Gospel of John goes on for 21 chapters. Jesus lived on this earth for how long? 33 33 years. He ministered for how many years? Three years. So 33 years, three-year ministry. You would think that John would give over the greater part of his Gospel at least to the three years, right? Right? we're in John chapter 14 we're already at the Last Supper which means that the last seven chapters of the Gospel of John are given over to what just the last seven days which tells us where the real focus is so what we call Holy Week which is one of the reasons why Lent is a time of anticipation a time of preparation it's the holiest time of the year the time of the Lord's crucifixion and his resurrection so Jesus that's why this is called the farewell discourse Jesus is getting ready to leave his disciples. They don't know it. Not that he hasn't told them. He had told them over and over again over the course of three years they had refused to listen. But here's what he says to them. He says, let not your hearts be troubled. They sense that something's not right. There's a heaviness in the air. Jesus is somber compared to what he's normally. He says, let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? You've got an inheritance, fellows. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. Translate, I'm going to wipe away every tear from your eyes. And then he says this, And you know the way to where I am going. And Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going, so how can we know the way? What's the way to this redemption, to this adoption, to this election, to this forgiveness of sins, to this promise, down payment of the Holy Spirit? What is the way, Thomas is asking. And Jesus said to him in verse 6, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father Except through me. Now I pointed out in the sermon last week that many people living in a politically correct age find that to be offensive. There's only one way. That, that really bothers me. I think God ought to supply many ways. I mean that, that that would be generous. Let me tell you something. If we're all sinners and we all deserve death, because For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, and the wages of sin is death. If that's what we all deserve, God doesn't have to provide any way, and he's still just. The the, the fact that he provides a way shows that he is merciful and gracious. Do you really think that the man is out there drowning in the lake, and somebody throws him a life preserver, and he said, thanks, but I would have preferred a rope. He takes hold of whatever is thrown to him, whether it's a stick that's extended to him, or a rope, or a life preserver. It doesn't matter what it is. The fact that a way is provided, he clings to that with all that he has. God has provided a way. He doesn't have to provide any way. He has provided a way, and it is a way that is open to all people, and that way is Jesus Christ. And if we will cling to him, take hold of him, and be united to him, All of these spiritual blessings, the Apostle Paul says, are ours. But they are to be found in one place and in one place alone, and that is in Christ. This is a theme that is so important to the Apostle Paul. To be in Christ, to be found in Christ. In fact, this is such an important notion that the New Testament can't even really describe it without images. What does it mean to be in Christ? Well, the New Testament said it's like a bride and a groom. They become one flesh. It's a mystery how it happens. But I've always said there is no environment that is better for sanctification, for honing and shaping people and turning them into holy people than marriage. It will do it more than any other institution in the world. It'll make you or it'll break you. The New Testament describes it as a marriage. We are united to Christ in marriage. The two become what? One flesh. One flesh in holy matrimony. Jesus himself described it as a vine and branches. He said, I'm the vine. You are the branches. Abide in me. Because apart from me, you can do nothing. But if you abide in me, you will what? Bear much fruit. If you cut off the branch... What happens to the limbs? They get their life from the branch, you see. If the limb is cut off from the branch, the limb cannot survive on its own. It withers. The fruit withers. Its life is to be found in the branch. Jesus said, I'm the vine. Abide in me, and you will bear much fruit. The New Testament describes it as a body with a head. Christ is the head. We are the hands, we are the feet. Now every part of that body is important. The hand can't say to the foot, I have no need of you. It doesn't matter what part you are of the body, you are important and St. Philip's needs you. Some of you are a hand, some of you are a foot. We need you all. But there's one thing we can't live without. We can't live without the head, can we? You can live without a hand, you can live without a leg. You can live without an arm, but you cannot live without the head. Unless you are abiding in the head, you cannot live. Unless you are abiding in the vine, you cannot bear fruit. If you are not united with Christ, you cannot enjoy those spiritual blessings. But if you do, all that is His is already yours and will be in its fullness in the life to come. That's the hope that we have as Christians. And that's why when everything in the world is going to hell in a handbasket, you and I can take courage, can have strength, and continue to let our light so shine before men that they may see our good works. And in coming to know us, come to know Him. Whom to know? is life everlasting. Those are the spiritual blessings that we share in Christ. Let's pray. Father, we give you thanks and praise for Paul so much in just these few verses. We thank you that we are in Christ. And if there be anyone here today who does not know if they are in Christ, if they are united to him, by faith, then I pray, Lord, that they would seek out the counsel of one of the clergy. It would be our great privilege to give them the reassurance or to lead them into that relationship so that they can have the assurance that is ours in Christ Jesus. Lord, we give you thanks and praise. We pray that we would abide in the vine, that the love and the life and the grace of Christ might bear fruit in us. All this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you.